0: people to talk about writing with is Tucker Max. I just read this. I didn't know this before, but there's only three people in history that have had three books at the same time on the New York Times bestseller list. One of them is Tucker Max, my guest on the podcast today, and the other two are Michael Lewis and Malcolm Gladwell. So I didn't know that before this podcast. But anyway, I always love talking with Tucker about what is the nature of a story, how important story is to success whether it's in writing or business or in relationships and once we've established that we get right into how do you tell a good story no matter what your objectives are so here we go part 2 of the tucker max episodes so you've been posting every day or every couple of days this lessons you've learned and it's and it's very nice. They're not, they're not like blog posts. So I really uh, uh, appreciate this, this new style from you. It's just like these very short, concise, but very poignant lessons you've learned. And you have one which basically says in sort of a battle of ideas and stories about ideas, the person who can tell the right story is going to yeah. be the better idea even. Oh, yes. And I think that's a meta skill and you've been referring to it in this podcast. That's almost a meta, meta skill no matter what you do, no matter what your skills are, you need to be able to tell the story
1: about those specific skills. And I agree with that completely. I mean, that's the next product we're building at Scribe is the storytelling course and the storytelling, like tell your story. We're going to build like as a memoir, tell your story, but then also storytelling as a skill. There are a lot of good people who know how to teach that. We're going to teach it, I think a little bit of a different angle on that. Tie back to young people. In the coming economy, there's two skills programming, and storytelling. And storytelling encompasses sales, marketing, all that. If you can do one really well, you're going to be great. If you can do both, then you could be like figuratively a god. And I can only think of a few people who can do both. Mark Andreessen can do both. Yeah. It's interesting because look at great companies like
0: Apple – think about it Steve Wozniak had the programming Steve Jobs had the storytelling mm-hmm. I would argue Google both Larry Page and Sergey Brin
1: could do so They're, they were no. both pretty good at both you don't think no nah, no nah. there's a i mean think about this think about the head start Google had in every field and it basically screwed all of them up the only reason Google still exists is because it owns search and search is so dominant but like you look at all the companies there's Dozens, hundreds of billion-dollar companies that carved off stuff that Google could have. Google does not tell a great story. Google just got there early, Mm. right? Google is very vulnerable. Facebook is very vulnerable. Um, uh, Like, Twitter is extremely vulnerable. I can see, like, Parler is going to carve off a huge chunk. I think Parler has something like 2 million users right now. Right, exactly. Um, They're all very, very vulnerable. Ah, uh, they have a lot of money and they have power. Amazon is the least vulnerable because Amazon tells a great story and has just told the same story over and over. And it's like I order something that shows up in my house every single time, and it's super cheap and it's high quality. Can't beat that. Um, the other three, they're in trouble.
0: Yeah, I mean, and all the companies that tell stories are vulnerable. The Netflixes of the and all their competitors, the Netflixes, Disney's, and so on. Mm-hmm you know, they're going to run out of stories to tell. No, you never run out of stories to tell. I don't think so. They're going to run out of their stories. To, yes. You know, ultimately, the public decides what stories Netflix can tell. It's hard for them to come up with a unique story. And
1: well, most of those, com- a lot of those companies are being captured by wokeism and they're starting to see the impacts though. So we're going to start to, we may, shockingly, we may see the antibodies to wokeism develop in the corporate world. I love the analogy. I love this antibodies to, to this. Uh... You, you saw what happened with Nike, man. Nike lost in, in the middle of the, the explosive online growth moment, Nike lost $700 million. I think they're maybe, maybe they will, maybe they won't reconsider. They went full woke. They went full, full woke, right? And again, I like, I wanna be real clear supporting oppressed black people in America. I'm all for. It. I'm all in. Supporting woke is a different thing, right? And they went full woke. They weren't like they didn't. They weren't like, hey, we need to, to uh, police reform. We need to, you know, all, no, no, no. They didn't do that. They're like, let's fucking kneel down, give the middle finger to mom and dad, like all that sort of shit. They suffered. Whereas, like the companies that didn't, Under Armour did amazing. Their stocks through the roof. You're starting to see. Like the ones that, that it depends where and how they embrace embrace wokeism. But I'm telling you, man, I'll tell you, this is another reason why who wins in in November makes a big difference. If Trump wins, I think Trump and the conservative core go after and break up Facebook and Google, especially Hmm. Google. I wonder how how you would do that. Like, what would you do? Because search is... Are you kidding? You You can wield antitrust law any way you want. Like that's, antitrust law is essentially voodoo. It's made up. Like, and I'm telling you as someone who studied this in law school, the, the iconic example is if you sell more than your competitor, it's price gouging. If you sell at your competitor's price, it's collusion. If you sell less, then it's uh, uh, flooding the market, right? So you can make any, it is a power play. It is a pure and simple power play. And I can absolutely unequivocally, I think Trump will go after, well, really, I would say probably Twitter, Twitter and Facebook even more than Google, although Google's trying to de-platform too. They're going to go after them. Absolutely unequivocally. That's one of the re- that's one of the big things, man. If the Democrats win, the, the tech state and the government state then merge. And then that's when you gotta really worry about it's not cancel culture anymore. Now it's like people disappear, right? And like like that is my fear. Like, oh, the the end state of that is people disappearing. We're not gonna have people in December of this year, no one's disappearing. But the end state of technology and government merged is Soviet Russia. Right. Well, and it's not, That's what it is. it's not like
0: disappearing in the Soviet sense. It's not like disappearing in the Argentinian sense where, you know, you literally disappear. Right. Right. It's disappearing in the Alex Jones sense. Yes. Right, well, well, and it's also, it's like the, the, the technology allows people to pretend to have good intentions. Hey, we need to isolate you for XYZ reasons. Yes. Now there's a virus reason, but there could be, there's going to be other reasons. You know, there's not going to, there's going to be nonstop reasons, just like the way Someone could defend freedom of speech, but at the same time say, but, you know, a U.S. senator shouldn't be doing an op-ed in the New York Times. Like, you know, there's going to be all these people with good
1: intentions. Like, well, well, yeah, we need to use this technology. Think about the arrogance of the idea that a sitting U.S. senator needs to be deplatformed. Right. And this is not even saying Republican or Democrat. Like a sitting U.S. senator. Someone who was elected by millions of people. Should be deplatformed. Think about that for a second, and then you understand what the New York Times is. They are a partisan in an ideological war. That is what they are. Everything is like that. Look at Twitch right now.
0: And again, this is not about Trump, no Trump, whatever. But Twitch saying any politician is not allowed on Twitch anymore. And at the same time, last night, my daughter was
1: shooting up prostitutes in Grand Theft Auto on on Twitch. So hold on. A platform says no politicians? I get it. Okay, fine. We're making a business decision to eliminate a, uh, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm with, That's not what. The, yeah,
0: if you do it universally across the board, you can't just isolate. I get though. it.
1: I get it. I, like, uh, right. But Twitter, Twitter's decided that Donald Trump tweeting about protecting the sovereignty of America is inciting violence. Dude, think about that sentence for a second. Do you understand? Like that. When I tell you, you have to pick a side. That is what I mean. It's here. It's in front of you. It's right fucking here. But look, you know what's so funny, Tucker, because this uh, brings me back to 2013.
0: You know, you were helping me um, with my book, Choose Yourself, and uh, just that book there. The, the, the then-CEO of Twitter wrote the forward because Twitter then was this very choose-yourself medium, like anybody in the world could have a voice. It's very different then, yes. And now it's the, right now, if I want to watch snuff videos, like videos of people being killed, I can go on Twitter and watch a hundred different videos, a million different videos of people being killed, which by yeah. the way, when we were kids, that, you never would have been able to watch a no. video of that. No. But, but meanwhile, if I just tweet the word hydroxychloroquine or coronavirus, that tweet will probably be like shadow banned or banned yes. or whatever, yes. just mm-hmm. by the bots. Yep. But oh, yeah. snuff videos, no problem. I just watched today by accident. And I really do mean by accident. Like I didn't realize it was going to happen. It's watch this guy getting shot right in the face and dying right on this video. As kids, were you able to
1: watch a snuff video? You're I keep a, telling you, wokeism is a death cult. Yeah. It, it's it just is. This is not like it's not like I came up with this idea. Like I'm I'm smart. I'm not like you can look at it and see. It's a death cult. That is what they are.
0: So tell me about what the different angle on storytelling. So obviously. We both told lots of stories in our lives. I always think of it kind of classically in terms of the the arc of the hero and in vulnerability and, and sort of sort of this concept of vulnerability buys you freedom. So being able to say what you want, you know and, and being able to handle the consequences, that's freedom and And that goes along that leads leads into the arc of the hero so what's what's the what's the angle, the twist you have on storytelling um which, by the way, you're very vulnerable. People don't. I just want to say out loud, people don't realize, like, because I've seen people try to imitate your style of, of writing. They Doesn't don't work. Doesn't. They, they don't no get it. No one's
1: ever Be- been able to do it ever. No,
0: because they don't get. And this is this is very similar to when when I see people try to imitate Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. They don't get that you're actually criticizing yourself in the books. That's mm. the key. Is that you're actually extremely vulnerable in these books and when they try to imitate they're just trying to glorify their adventures in college or no, whatever they're, just, they're
1: they're trying to get a narcissistic supply they're trying to get right. the attention they see me getting without Im- they are imitating what they see they don't actually see what it is that gets me attention no because it takes it takes a, a nu- it takes the skill of storytelling to understand the nuances i that's i disagree it takes a consciousness level hmm. they are not at that level of consciousness they are not connected to anything or anyone around them and that's why they can't see it. Even if, dude, I've had people try to imitate me who are excellent writers and excellent storytellers. They, You don't have to know how to tell a story to be vulnerable. They're different things, completely right. different things. Now, if you know how to tell a story and you combine it with vulnerability, you, right. you get magic, right? But you don't have to know how to tell a story
0: to be vulnerable. And, and you know, it's funny you say that because on the reverse side of things, I've seen people try to imitate me, where they'll, ta- they'll glorify their stories of failure. It's this whole category of what I now call failure porn.
1: Yeah, failure porn, exactly. Dude, There's it's, a whole segment of marketers
0: that do this now. It's obnoxious. Right, but they can't tell a story. So, no. there's, so
1: this, you're right, there are, they are two different skills. And so it makes it very unappealing. You can tell they're faking it because it's like the way they write about bankruptcy is like the way they s- perceive other people see bankruptcy. The way you wrote about bankruptcy was like, I've never been bankrupt, but I felt it. I felt it when you read it. I was like, oh, God, I understand what this feels like. Not pleasant. I don't want to say you can't do that unless you've been through it because that's not true. But it is extraordinarily difficult to write about things that you have not actually felt. And most people cannot do it. It it takes a world-class novelist, screenwriter, storyteller to be able to tell a story with deep vulnerable emotion about something they did not do. Like like uh, J.K. Rowling does it really well in Harry Potter. Uh, you know, George R.R. R. Martin does it. Uh, like, uh, like you know, no, no one's ridden a dragon or whatever. like, uh, But uh, they're still writing about very common human emotions. They're just projecting themselves in there. It's really hard to fake that. Right, right, like a great example is a great example of someone who can't
0: do it actually is Charles Bukowski. So you look at his first four novels, you know, Post Office, Factotum, Ham on Rye, Women, uh Oh Hollywood. So for his first five novels, he's basically telling his a, a memoir and yeah. calling it a novel. Yeah. But then when he wrote his final book Pulp, which was a pure detective novel, it was like one of the worst novels ever. Like he couldn't <laughs> really tell, write fiction.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's so, true. It's I st- I tried to write fiction at the beginning, and it was awful. It was the garbage. Oh, dude, it was the worst garbage dumpster fire of all time. And then I gave up and just told my stories, and the rest is history.
0: Right, and I think I think that also wrote, uh, began this wave of kind of literary nonfiction or narrative nonfiction, which I think has been a positive cultural, you know, thing that's happened. Like I think those are, those are the best stories right now.
1: But, uh, so what, what, tell me an angle on storytelling. Well, the way that I think, I'm not sure, man, because I haven't, we haven't really worked through it, but the way that, well, there's two things. Like the way we're going to teach memoir is very, very different. Like if you look at the way, and I have a whole shelf of all the big memoir books, they're all fucking garbage. (laughs) They suck because none of them address the entire reason to write memoir, Right. And I, I tell all the people in our workshop, if you want to join our workshop, it's free. You can watch the whole thing. Go to scribebookschool.com. It teaches all the instructions there. So
0: what, what's um, the URL? scribe? scribe slash?
1: Scribebookschool.com. And then okay. we have nonfiction and memoir. They're different tracks, and you can do either one. But um, what we teach for memoir, it basically boils down to this. No one reads your book to learn about you. They read your book to learn about themselves. But mm. the way they learn about themselves is through your honest and vulnerable expression of your emotions and your experiences. You know, and and you wrote this in one of your lessons I've learned, and I thought this was very interesting.
0: It made me, A, think of my own writing, but then it made me think of, um, uh, you've probably read uh, William S. Burroughs' Junkie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, he's another guy. I don't really like some of his later stuff, but Junkie is this very direct memoir-style book which packages a novel, because that's what they were doing, about his experiences as a heroin addict in, in New York mm-hmm. City. And it's very just, what, what was very interesting is he goes back and forth between the first person and the second person. And when he's doing the second person, you almost could imagine that he's writing a guide rather than a memoir. And I think it's that that kind of hint of a memoir being a guide, which is, which is basically what you're saying there, that people want to read about themselves. I think that contributed to his success in that is that he says, you know, you don't want to trust these kind of, pimps because they do this. And so is he writing about himself experiencing these pimps or is he giving it you suggestions when because he's using the word you?
1: And uh, I think that that is a very interesting way to look at it. When you write second person, it just makes you feel like you're in a conversation, which works really well for, it can work really well for memoir. Yeah. It and depends when you're going though, back you You got to be forth. a different kind of writer. Like I wouldn't recommend that for new writers.
0: Well, if you do it a hundred percent of the time, then it feels a little like Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City. It, feel, it yeah. feels a little fake. It's, you're right. It's, it's too difficult. But if you go back and forth, like, you know, I went up to the whorehouse. I brought all my, you know, the $30 I had left. But, you know, you can't mess around with uh, pimps like this, blah, blah, blah. So if you go back and forth, and like you say, it's, it's a combination of first-person memoir. But then there's this slight hint of it being a guide as well as a memoir. And I think that's what you're alluding to. It makes it easier for the reader to, to acknowledge that I'm reading about myself rather than just reading about this guy being a junkie in the 1950s.
1: The, what, what, what memoir really boils down to for most people is the therapy they're afraid to do. Mm-hmm. And so we address that head on. If you're going to write memoir, you need to understand that this is a therapeutic process. And that, that if you try to avoid it, your memoir will be garbage and no one will read it. No one will care. But if you engage it and do as, go as deep as you can and, and go as far as you can, you don't have to go all the way, just go as far as you can, then you, both, you are going to get a lot out of it. And then we actually don't tell people they have to publish their book because to, you will get an immense amount out of writing your book and putting it in a drawer. We generally recommend you probably should publish it for a lot of reasons. Um, but then we have a guide we help people kind of figure out uh, but like it's a, all of the stupid memoir guides. None of them really address the fact that why do people want to write memoir? Why do they want to tell their story? Because they all approach it like, how do I sell this? Because they're author or professional writers trying to tell people how to be professional writers. Most people don't care about being professional writers. Like if it sells, cool, like cash the checks, right? Most people want to tell their story, which is a totally different thing, and that is at its core both a therapeutic process and a heroic process. And so we help people understand that and unpack it and then walk through it and see their book as a journey where um, they're uncovering what their story is, who they really are, and being the hero that they needed, that they didn't have. That's interesting.
0: So I I haven't thought of it as, I guess the closest I have come to thinking of it that way is when I advise people, don't, publish something unless you're specifically afraid of what people are going to think of you. If at some point during the process, you became afraid of what people are going to think of you if you say this publicly. That's true for a memoir. That's very true for a memoir. Yeah. And I I wonder if it's true for, for other things as well you know, for, for fiction.
1: It's it's true for nonfiction just in that in that good nonfiction should pr- put new ideas in, into the world or new collections or new curations or should challenge an established idea. Absolutely, we teach that as well. Like, I, I'm not going to write a book called The Sky is Blue. Why would someone be like, I know that. So it's got to be something new, some new idea or some new take. Uh, whether that challenges you or not is a different idea. Like, I'm not going to be afraid of writing a, a, a new idea in memoir I'm, I'm not at that stage, right? So for nonfiction, it's is it is it additive to at least somebody's experience? Memoir, I'm with you about fear, fear being a good guide for at least for writing it. There's different things about publishing. You and I are different. Like we're professionals, right? If someone's not a professional, there's a lot of other considerations that they have to to go through before they publish, and they should go through. Not even just legal. Just take all that stuff out. Like a lot of people don't know how to just write about their experience. They know how to criticize others. They don't know how to talk about themselves. And so, like, that's something that we try to teach. But, like, unless they're getting editing from us, it, you, we, what we teach is, <clears throat> here was my experience. That's your memoir. Like, if, if the frame is, I'm telling you about what happened to me and what I felt and what I did, that's a memoir. But the, the, the I felt part is very interesting. I oh, felt is layers, the key. Right. I felt is the absolute key. But if the frame is, here's my family's dirty, awful secret, even if you're talking about the same things, that's vengefulness, that's vindictiveness. Yeah. that's you uh, uh, speaking from a wound instead of a scar, and it doesn't help you or anyone else. Right, right? and by the way, there's a distinction between good writing and
0: book sales. Because if you write, you know, there's a lot of books out there that are revenge revenge books, and they they do fine in sales. There's also a lot of that do poorly in sales. So we're we're not really talking sales
1: at all. No, no, because no. Because that's, the, that's the only revenge books that do well, like celebrity revenge, like a tell-all. Yeah. No, no, regular person's tell-all is going to sell. They don't care. It doesn't. that right. doesn't matter. No, I tell people not to worry about writing at all, uh, like the the quality of the writing, especially early, because uh, that's that's not why you're writing the book. You're writing the book to tell your story. And to and a lot of times we tell people is to rewrite your story. Not to change it, because you can't change what happened, of course. But uh, you get to decide what your story means. Right? You get The facts are always going to be the same. But you get to decide, my mother abandoned me. That when I was 15, that it meant X to me. When I was 20, it meant Y to me. Now that I'm 40, it means Z to me. You get to decide what it means. And a memoir is the best way to do that.
0: Yeah. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach and it's just such a great experience like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb but whenever i'm at an Airbnb i always realize you know i the home that i left to come to this Airbnb i could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself so and i've known people i had a friend who basically you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. To fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long, and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip recruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I... Signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job. I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like "Hey, you're qualified for this or that." And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com/slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, what challenges have you, when you've been dealing with authors, is there pushback? Like, yeah, you kind of have to get them to dig dig a little deep.
1: No, we, we don't push people that way because um, people can only go so far. And so, we'll tell people… Like you you may end up writing multiple, shit. I mean I've written what four memoirs. I got an, I'm working on my next one right now. Really? Like all about yeah, dude, all about psychedelic therapy and all that and all the stuff I, I realized in that and how it changed. Oh yeah, dude, I'm doing all that. Like it like my story of that. Yeah, you know, like I wrote that piece on Medium about it. That was just my first two things. I'm two years in now.
0: Well, also these lessons you've learned, it's a companion piece because I what you've learned from this therapy is is it's coming out of you in these
1: lessons you've learned. Here, here, I want your opinion on this. Here's what I think I'm going to start doing is I'm going to keep tweeting them exactly the way they are short, pithy to the point. But then I think I'm going to get on like my little rig here and, and record sort of like, you know, what did I used to do? What do I, uh, what did that cause? What lesson did I learn? Which then would be the tweet. And then what do I do now? You know, and it wouldn't be long, probably um, anywhere from two to 10 minutes max about each one of these, kind of giving a little bit of a backstory and a little bit of examples and do that as like YouTube videos and podcasts. What do you, what do you think about that idea?
0: I, I, I love it because that's where you introduce the story into the lesson. There you go, exactly. You, when you give the lesson, look, you're a good writer. So you give the lesson, so it forces me to think of my story and how yes. this applies, yep. right? Because you're not giving anything other than a mirror in, in, the, in the lesson. Right. But when you throw in your story, that's when I really want to see how it applies. And then I'll really even more deeply relate. Go
1: even deeper. Yeah.
0: yeah. So in, the, in whatever format, it doesn't matter the format, whether you write it, video, podcast, do all three.
1: I think I will. I think I'll, I think I'm going to add that on. I'm not going to change what I'm doing. Um, I'm just going to add that.
0: No. Yeah. Don't change what you're doing because there's a lot of value in just the short, you know, again, I look back to my posts, you know, from 10 years ago, they're long, <laughs> Maybe yeah. I should have done some of them as more short. Pithy. You know why
1: I started doing short, man, is to learn copywriting. Like, I'm, a, uh, being a great book writer and being a great copywriter are totally different right. things. 100% different. And it was a forcing function for me to 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 really start to be precise with my words. Um, that's why I put it on Twitter first, and I get it short, and then I put it on the other ones. Uh, that's, uh,
0: that's why I, again, this is like 10 years ago, that's why I would do Facebook first, <laughs> and then... You know, later on, have a book or whatever. Yeah. But uh, now you're, 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 your Twitter. You're right. You're limiting it to 280 characters. There's a lot of different models of what makes a good copywritten, you know, message. But it sort of feels like you're doing the, uh, the what's the p what's called the P A S model: problem, agitate, solution. So you know, I used to, you know, think like this caused much suffering, and here's a solution. mm mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. A lot of times I do that. That is that is pretty standard. Yeah, the thing I'm really trying to do is get the idea across in the the most compressed, condensed way possible.
0: Yeah, let me. I I took some of my favorites and and um, I've been copy pasting them because a lot of times I'll 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 read them and I'll say, yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. Even though you were might not have been talking about anything remotely similar to that. so, like here, uh, if I want to control—here's one you wrote. If I want to control a situation, my best strategy is to ask more questions rather than try to tell people what to do or give answers. There is far more control in questions than there ever is in directives. Something and that's frame. a real powerful—you know—you were referring to frame control earlier. It's a very powerful
1: frame as well. Mm-hmm. That's exactly so. I'm talking about frame control there.
0: Yeah. So so like. You know, this is very important in parenting, for instance. If you tell a kid, look, you're not going, you're not going out tonight. Of course they're going out tonight, whether you like it or not. Right. Um, but if, if, if your thing is to say, like, well, what do you think about, um, I don't know, what do you think about all these killings happening right outside the door? I don't know. If you just ask questions and get them to think. Like, I used to try to argue with my oldest daughter about college. And right. I would say to her, like, you can't go to college because this, 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 this she would literally just turn around and walk away from me. Yeah. Like no response, nothing. And I would say, you can't just walk away from me. She would just keep walking. There's no point in trying to control her. But if I start saying like, huh, uh, why do you think Google is suddenly not uh, asking for degrees anymore? Or why do you think, you know, you want to be an actress? Do you have, what, Why do you think some people... Get act, great acting jobs between the ages of eighteen and and twenty two. Do you think they went to college? What what happened there? And you're right. Asking the questions get plants the seeds and gets them thinking. Uh
1: huh. Yep. Ericksonian uh, therapy. It's the way he did it. He would just tell stories and ask questions. That's it. Never told anyone what to do ever. So let's see. There's um. Uh, I, I love this one as
0: well. Uh, like everybody, in, I'm sure this has happened to you, you. Ever if you you ever end a relationship and then suddenly the other person is just constantly thinking you're toxic. No one could ever admit or acknowledge that they might've had something to contribute to this. But you have this great uh, lesson. Um, You say, the only toxic relationship I can have is with myself. Every other relationship in my life is simply a reflection of the relationship I have with myself. Once I really got this, I had to make many changes. So I love the general, I had to make many changes. (laughs) There's no story there. there's just kind of the the this is like the umbrella on top of a story
1: mm-hmm. uh, it is. and do you notice the way I frame them to every single one? I never say you. it's never second person. it's never telling yeah. anyone else what to do. It's always me always,
0: yeah, that's interesting. Um, let's see and here's another one similar so a relationship that cannot tolerate this is this is actually an extremely important one. I might even have commented on this when you're first put it out there. A relationship that cannot tolerate a thoughtful conversation about needs, disappointments, and desires is not a healthy relationship. Okay. We could have just done the entire podcast and just Easily. said that one line. Easily. And then, hey, good to see you. Good talking to yeah. you. Um, that's such an important concept. Mm-hmm. Oh, give, yeah. Give, Tell me the, tell me a story there.
1: Tell, give, me, give me an example. I mean, God, I could just talk about a million things in my marriage alone. Like, um, both Veronica and I both, uh, when we met, and still even years later, um, are not very good at expressing things in our needs. So, like, for example, um, okay, I can't stand it when she uses my razor to shave her legs, right? <laughs> and she stopped doing it. But for a while, this was like a big fight in our house. And so I would, like, criticize her and yell at her and, like, get so upset about this, right? And I was expressing I had a need, and the need was I needed my razor to be reserved for my face. right? <laughs> and uh, and, and I, was, I was expressing this criticism of her. Why would you do this? You don't care about me. You're so selfish. Right? And then uh, eventually I'm, like, I, I realized, okay, she's not getting this. So I had to start talking about it, like, when you use my razor – I feel like you don't care about me. That, because I've asked you about this multiple times and, and then you do it anyway. And it makes me feel like, uh, why are we even in a relationship? It, uh, like if the person I'm with can't even respect a simple boundary I'm trying to draw. And then she was fucking crying and like, because it wasn't about criticizing her. I expressed it as my need, not her, a problem with her. Well, let me ask you, let me
0: ask you this. What if you don't really know what your needs are because let's say you're you've got you to think and figure those out though. yeah because you, I mean a lot of relationships and this is talking about frame control a lot of relationships as you know there's something called frame fatigue where one person has too much of the frame all the mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and uh, so the other person just, just disintegrates in frame and that's uh, called codependency mm. Where you where, yeah. so just define that because I, I always well, it, hear that too.
1: it's essentially when you are uh, uh, relying on the other person to feel emotions for you, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in in a relationship like that, if someone is has controls the frame the whole time, and the other person doesn't, uh, the person controlling the frame the, the the whole time is getting something from them, right? They they need whatever it is, a submissiveness from a partner. They need the illusion of control. They need, they need something. There's a reason because if someone is powerful enough to control their frame all the time and is a higher level of consciousness, they're going to be with someone who, um, who can hold the frame back on them, who can have their own frame, Right. Uh, uh, And because when you're in a relationship, they have their frames, you have your frames, and then there are co-frames. You know, like our relationship is defined. It's a negotiated thing, relationships are, right? And so um, it's not all one thing. And so uh, like in any relationship, it is negotiated and both the needs are being met. It's so like that woman is getting, I'm assuming it's a man controlling the frame, but it doesn't have to be. It's not by any stretch. But the the man's getting something he wants. And so is the woman. Uh, It's not, he's not the bad guy there. She, they're both equally bad or good. There's really not a moralistic judgment. They're both trying to meet their own needs, really not through effective ways uh, uh, in terms of if they want to like have a happy, elevated consciousness and a good life, but it works. It makes him less anxious about control. It makes her feel a sense of security. Let's say, I'm just guessing, right? Uh, okay, then it, it's sort of like why? It's like, why is a drug addict a drug addict? because uh, why is a heroin addict a heroin addict which is a great example because the heroin works the heroin mm-hmm. is, is a way for them to manage the pain of unfelt emotions right it may destroy the rest of their life but it works it absolutely does what it's supposed to do right and so, so like it's, that's it's that idea so uh
0: this this next one i think is really great there's a lot there's a lot in here which is uh, so? I'm quoting you now. The most important decision in my life is who I spend my time with. The most important actions I take are what I do to make sure I create value for them. And you're talking about you say my work, both personal and professional, and then everything else is noise. And I think that second, first, the first line is absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a, it's the thing. Simil- yeah, it's 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 also like you're the average of the five people you spend your time with, and yep. and so. On. But this idea that the most important actions I take are what I do to make sure I create value for them, that's incredibly important to for people to to understand because there's so many instances you are trying to reflect your own importance in a relationship as opposed to uh, thinking about the self worth and needs of the other person, and that could be in a, a conversation at a Networking cocktail party, or it could be in work, or it could be in relationships, like or with your kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People don't want you to establish dominance over them. They want to know you think they're important, and you have yep. to provide value for them to realize that. For them to give you, you want to give them status in those situations. And yeah, I, I think I think that's a, that's a really valuable a valuable lesson. So uh, look, Tucker. It's always great to to update and uh, how's business.
1: You you run a publishing company. We're doing good, man. We March was a disaster, like it was for almost everybody. We had a full slate of of sales calls, and then two days later, we had zero <laughs> zero. Uh, and then then we launched Scribe Book School uh, in March, and it blew up. And we had we taught ten thousand people how to write a their book for free, either nonfiction or memoir. And now that's kind of blown up. It launched a whole lower lower tier coaching program uh, mm-hmm. that's been doing amazing. And then uh, we're we're on track. We we had our best month of all ever in our history in June. That's and then great. our second best month was April, and our third best month was May. <laughs> so, wow, that's awesome! Like we've had a pretty good three months. Yeah. And you know, originally you were
0: doing a lot of um, like. I'll call it like business, self-help, you know, marketing, business, sales, mm-hmm. management, leadership. Yep. And, uh, do you think that became those books kind of became, there's too many of them now? No, no,
1: quite the opposite. I All think right. we've
0: only, we've only just started. All right. Good. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, this is no, just like some of those books I really enjoy. Like Joey no, Coleman one know, of my favorite I know, people no, in the world. I,
1: I think we've only just started. I think we have literally just started. I think. The day is going to come where it's basically an entry point into being a high-level professional that you have a book. If you don't, it, it used to be what a college degree was. It used to be like, if you don't have a college degree, it's like, who? how can you be taken seriously, right? And now no one cares anymore because everyone got them. It's not a marker of status anymore, And maybe unless you went to Harvard or something. But even then, it's like, oh, look, another asshole was telling me he went to Harvard, right? Uh, I think a book for most knowledge workers is going to be the gateway into high level. Because if you can't, uh, like what it takes to write a book and the way it allows you to be judged, um, I think are 10 times better than a college degree. Because like, yeah, yeah. uh, you can fake your way into a college degree, you can bullshit. Like it's easy to bullshit a college degree, it's not easy to bullshit a book. Even if you pay a bunch of money and get a great ghostwriter, okay. I'm going to, let's say I'm a potential client. Like, let's say you're a CEO coach. You're a hundred grand a year. I read your book and I know it. If you got a great ghostwriter, you don't actually know your things. I'm going to figure it out real quick if I read your book. It won't take long.
0: You know, and also, I I think I heard you say this in a talk a while ago that let's say uh, a conference or a corporation is trying to decide who to pick as a speaker or a consultant or whatever. Everybody's equally qualified, but one person has a book. That's the person they who's get hired. Always go with the
1: person with the book. Always. That's easy. Yeah. So there,
0: there was that, and then there was another thing you told me. This is related to the memoir stuff, or you didn't tell me this was in a presentation you gave. But write your memoir. You know, now in a world of self-publishing, you know, anybody can write any book, and the you know sales are always unpredictable. No matter whether you have, you know, Simon and Schuster as your publisher or you self-publish, sales are random. But Think about, this is the first time we can write a book now for our great-great-great-grandchildren to get to know who we are.
1: That is the argument I make in our, the entry point uh, of Scribe Book School is, should you write a book? And the story I tell is that my, my dad's grandmother, my great-grandmother, immigrated from, from Hungary in like 1915 and changed her name to Max at Ellis Island, along with my grandfather. They moved to LA and uh, raised my grandfather and father as Catholics. I did a 23andMe six years ago. Turns out we're Jews. <laughs> I'm Askenazi Jew, 25%. My dad's 50, my grandfather's 100%. She and my grandfather never told anyone, including their children. That, that's hilarious. I would pay any amount of money to have her story. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point.
0: And you'll and you'll never have it.
1: Nope. Nope. Not unless the afterlife is a thing. Then maybe I will. Well, uh
0: on that note, first, I don't even know. So everybody should check out Scribe Media, your publishing company. There's so many different services you do. It's not just. There's not just one i can't i won't describe them all check it out if you want to write and publish a book we're the place yeah we yeah, got to uh, but, but, but nuts any facet that. of that like yep. you you'd basically handle any facet of that other than i don't think you do
1: marketing but that's yeah not we your, do actually we marketing do? is half of our business now we just don't advertise it externally we only work with clients because we have so many oh maybe i maybe i have to talk to you then and <laughs> uh but check, everybody should check it out people should also
0: check out your 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 tweets and your facebook page every place you put these uh lessons you've learned uh they're great and they're life-changing and they're, they're very thought-provoking. So uh f- I, I, I really enjoy them and I and I hope you I can't wait for the book of the stories and I can't wait for the eventual book about the lessons cuz it's going to be it's going to be great. And uh once again, so great to have you on the the podcast. You were I think you were like my first guest. And now you're my latest guest. I, I know. I do. I still own the record for
1: the most uh, appearances. I've been I on think like five or six times. Maybe yeah, I think seven even on times.
0: more than that because we've yeah. di- we, we've divided some into we've divided like several of them into two. Probably we'll yeah, divide we will usually this into do two, two
1: hour episodes. So yeah. yeah, I probably have like ten or fifteen now.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, you're you you have been up there, and of course, there's people who are always like it's, you know this is a whole other story. So we'll get into it next time. The whole, more about the cancel culture, but once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you,
1: James. Yeah, it was fun. It was very fun.